Hello, and welcome to another episode of Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series was developed as a part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guest is Luke Pebler. He worked for years as an editor in Los Angeles before moving to Austin, Texas in 2015. He now works for Richard Linklater's Detour Productions, along with famed editor Sandra Adair. There, he's worked on features, including the recently released Last Flag Flying and the upcoming Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Pebbler graduated from the University of Wisconsin before moving to L.A. and earning his MFA at the University of Southern California. He worked on multiple TV series, including The Ghost Whisperer, Astronauts Wives Clubs, and Heart of Dixie. During his talk, he describes breaking into the industry, the changing perception of digital and reality content, and what it's like to enter Austin's tight-knit media community. He spoke on November 20th, 2017 on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Welcome, everyone, to our Thanksgiving installment of uh, Media Industry Conversation. I'm thrilled to welcome Luke Pebbler, uh, coming from Detour Productions. And before we get started, I just want to do my usual thanks. I want to thank, first of all, the RTF department and Chair Tom Schatz, uh, my colleague Cindy McCreary, as well as our fabulous grad student assistants, Kyle Rather, Brett Siegel, and Britta Hansen. And uh, let's see, what else? Also thank Dean Bernhardt for the Moody College of Communication. So. That's good enough. Let's do the intro. Uh, and I know many of you already have read up on Luke's background and bio, but just to give you a little sense of what I'm hoping we'll talk about today. Uh, he has a range of experiences across documentaries, feature films, a little bit of reality television, uh, network scripted television, online content, and so hopefully we can consider his breadth of post-production experiences across those. Uh, and also I'm hoping that he can share with all of us uh, details about his trajectory from his getting his MFA from USC about 10-ish years ago. Yeah, at least. Okay, 10 plus years ago. <laughs> yeah. uh, to working as an editor on a variety of projects and moving from LA to Austin and helping answer that eternal question, where should I live? Mm. Uh, so with that, uh, let's dig in. Sure. Okay. So my first question is just, uh, when did you figure out you were interested in media production and sort of how did your trajectory begin? Uh, for me, working in entertainment was not like a childhood dream that I had. I wasn't a very focused student growing up. Um, I was good in school, but I, did, I just, I kind of liked all of it. I didn't really give a thought to what I would do after school. Um, and that really extended to like halfway through my junior year of undergrad. Um, I kind of woke up one Monday morning and thought, oh, crap, I need a major, don't I, to graduate. Um, so I checked my transcript, and I just, like, looked to see what I'd taken the most classes in and what I was closest to graduating in, and I was equally close in computer science and RTF uh, at Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which is where I went to undergrad. Um, and so I ended up just kind of finishing both of those up. Um, 
and getting my degree in both of those. Um, the first time I really felt focused really at all um, was kind of my junior, senior year of undergrad. I got involved in the film committee at Wisconsin and met a bunch of other film fans and was introduced to a lot of, you know, art cinema and film school movies, you know, stuff I'd never thought about. Um, I took class from David Boardwell, uh, who's a great professor um, at UW. He introduced me to Hong Kong cinema. I took his Hong Kong class, which was really cool. Uh, and that was the first time I thought, like, oh, man, this is, like, this is what I like more than anything else. Like, maybe I'd like to do this as a career. Um, but uh, by that time, I was, like, going into my senior year of college, and I didn't really know what my job prospects would be after college in Madison. And so I kind of panicked and applied to a bunch of film schools, oh, wow. grad film schools. Um, and the only place that accepted me was USC. So... I ended up going straight to USC, basically from Wisconsin. Oh wow, that's yeah. a good place to get into. Yeah, <laughs> your your option. So, uh, what was film school like? Were you interning while you were there, or when did you sort of figure out editing was what you were interested in? Um, that was definitely at USC, and that's one of the one of the strongest aspects of USC's program. I think is that they they have really great faculty in all the different below the line technical fields, sound and, and editorial and camera and cinematography. And you're really free to specialize or not as you see fit when you're a production student um, at the cinema school at USC. And I, I, it was really great for me because, um, like I said, I wasn't sh exactly sure where I fit. Uh, I hadn't thought about it too much. And, and I think it was, at first, just my facility with computers and my background in computers and being into them growing up that drew me to editing. Um, Initially, but then once I start to sort of study the art more and see kind of the, the rhythmic aspects of it, I, I have a lot of music in my background as well, and, and that part of it really turned me on, and the storytelling aspects, and, and I found that it really fused a lot of things I was good at and things I was passionate about together, and so from there, it just made sense to kind of focus on that. Mm -hmm. um, so were you mainly making your own films and working on student projects, or did you get sort of engaged with industry locally while you were in film school? Uh, it was primarily just with my other classmates um, at USC. By third, third year, second or third year, there were some people who had kind of started to zero in on, on skills. You know, there were guys who, and girls who decided they liked camera and they wanted to be cinematographers and people like me who sort of tended towards post. And, and then everyone started making their thesis movie and so you, you know, you'd start to be the go-to guy. And so I, you know, I cut a lot of my friends' thesis movies. Because um, uh, there are a lot of people at USC who like came in wanting to be directors, and they, they wanted to be directors the whole time, and, and um, you know, so they they were looking for collaborators around them, which was great. Um, one of the great things about going to USC um, is that a lot of people who go there have a lot of money, um, and so they make very expensive movies. And they have to pay for them themselves, which it sucks to pay for your own expensive movie. But if you want to be a cinematographer or an editor, um, if you work on that person's movie, you get this very expensive movie uh, on your reel and your resume, and you don't have to pay for it. So, um, you know, that, that was another thing that I saw like, oh, this is like a great, it's kind of like a good deal, right? Um, but I did end up directing my own thesis movie as well, because I felt like I had come there to do it and I wanted to finish off. Um, it wasn't a requirement at USC, but I ended up doing it. Um, 
and I had a great time, and I feel like I accomplished what I needed to, but um, pretty much right out of school from then on, I, I, I've worked in post, and, and I've never looked back. I, I really, I love it. So what was your first job, and how did you, what did you prepare, or how did you land that? Uh, my first job, well, the first year out of school was, it was, there's kind of a, like a gray gradient between the end of school and the beginning of professional life when you're finishing your thesis movie. Like, you know, you're not going to class anymore, but your movie's not quite done, and you're still kind of, you know, you don't owe anybody any money yet for your student loans. Um, so the first year, kind of as I was finishing, um, I, I worked on tiny little features, a couple of features my friends made right out of school, and some like really low budget commercials. Um, and I didn't make much money, but um, I didn't really need to yet. And then my, my first real kind of job job that I broke into was through um, a friend of mine from school, one of my classmates had, had been in a producing class with a TV producer who had been like a guest professor. Um, and he'd got a job working for that producer. Um, and that guy's name was Ian Sander. He was an executive producer of a show called Ghost Whisperer that was on about 10 years ago on CBS. Um, and at the time, the show was run by Ian and uh, his wife, Kim Moses. Um, and this was like before the invention of YouTube. This was in the very early days of online video. Um, and Ian and Kim were pretty forward-looking, and so they were one of the first like real, real TV shows to do web content. Um, and so I was hired on as an assistant editor for their web series when they started it in the first season, um, which I sort of weaseled in through my buddy who was kind of the producer slash visual effects supervisor of the series. Um, and I showed up to work the first day, and, and the, the show was very low budget, and so the director had planned to edit um, and I was the assistant editor. Um, and then the director saw after one day that I was like capable, and he was like, oh, cool, you edit them. And he like left, basically. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it was, a, it was a lot of work, and it was not much money, but it was really great because, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a decent credit, and we got to work on the lot. Um, Ghost Whisperer was shot and um, produced at Universal Studios at the time. So, you know, I was on the lot, you know, working right down the hall from the people working on the real show. and. And um, it, was, it was really fun. And it was from there that I ended up leveraging my way onto the, the actual show, Ghost Whisperer. And that ended up being my first union show, my first big show that I worked on. So, so could you tell us, actually, how long did you work or before you could get union status? Or how did that process work? Yeah. Um, that was pretty difficult for me. I, I'm just of, I think I'm just of the right age that it was kind of before all this online stuff was viewed as legitimate at all by the union and by the sort of gatekeepers. Um, so I worked on two seasons of Ghost Whisperer webisodes, and then um, this was around the time of the writer's strike in Hollywood. 2007, 2008. Yeah, correct. Um, and during the writer's strike, you know, the, the show stopped production for a while, and, and um, I sort of went down and started kissing butts in the, in the editorial wing of the real show, and... and um, this was at the end of season three, and for the beginning of season four, um, they had an opening for an assistant editor on the show. And I thought, like, oh, hey, like, you know me, like, you want to hire me? And, and they were really gung-ho about it, and, and Ian Sander was really good to me. He was like, oh, yeah, we love to hire you. Um, but I had to be in the union in order, because it was a union show. And the way you get into the Editor's Guild is you need 100 days of non-union experience in the job that you're trying to join as. Um, and I had done far more than that on these webisodes, and so we all thought it was going to work out fine. Um, 
but it turned out that the union didn't want to um, acknowledge online content at the time. They didn't view it as legitimate, um, which is a weird thing to say now, yeah, looking yeah. back. Uh, um, and Ian was like, oh, I'll work it out with them. I'll call the union. Like, I'll go, we'll go right to the top. And they stonewalled him. They said, no, sorry. Um, so I, I ended up having to really quickly find a reality TV job, um, which reality TV is still, I think, the easiest way to get into the Editor's Guild. Um, some of the top reality shows are union, but most are still non-union, and so anyone can get hired on them. And then, you know, you work 100 days over two years, and then you got to file a bunch of paperwork and go to a bunch of meetings and jump through a bunch of hoops. But then, at that point, you're kind of in the editor's guild, and you can you can start working on union shows. So, can you say what the reality show is? Yeah, it was um, it was the fifth and final season of a ABC show called The Mole. Oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah, it was like on for a few years and then it was off for a few years and then they like brought it back one more time. I don't, I'm not sure why to this day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I got, I got really lucky um, on that show uh, because I got paid on a six day week, um, but we didn't, we, we never worked six days. And, but my union days ticked up, you know, 20% faster, which was really great. And literally at day 100, I was like, peace, I got another job. Um, uh, on that show? Uh, that show, reality, reality, unscripted and scripted shows are very different in terms of their editorial staffing. Um, uh, and in reality, typically, you'll have a, a stable of editors sometimes kind of cycling in and out over the course of the season. And it works on more like an act structure. So TV shows are broken into acts um, between the, the commercial breaks. And on a reality show, a lot of times you'll have four or five editors at a time on a show, each working on a different act of the same episode, and kind of everyone collaborates on one episode. They finish that one, they move on to the next one. I think mostly because there's so much footage that's shot typically, and a lot of times they're still finding the story as they shoot it, depending on the show. Whereas scripted television is much more, you know, you have three, typically three editors on a show, and you know, episode one goes to editor A, episode two goes to editor B, C, and you just keep rotating that way through a season. Um, so it's very chaotic on a reality show when you're, you're working for five different people and, they, and a lot of times you're setting up bins and sequences and doing you know, prep work for people who may have different you know, preferences and stuff. So it's a lot to juggle. Um, there's typically two or three assistants. It, it varies a lot depending on the size of the show and the budget and stuff. But. So do you see many executives or... And, like, who's coming into the editing suite? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of times, um, that, again, kind of depends on the show. That'll be an overarching theme. Is it, it's, it really varies a lot um, from show to show. It's part of what actually keeps the job fun, is every job's kind of different. But um, absolutely, on a TV show, you know, the head honcho is the showrunner or the creator. Um, you know, sometimes it's kind of a team of people. Sometimes it's one. Um, and, yeah, they're very often coming in and... and uh, it's good, it's definitely, it, it, if you have the gift of schmooze, that's a very good skill. Uh, to, you know, if you want to break into post and be, start out as an assistant editor, because, you know, if you start to be known as the person who knows what's going on and can get things done and, and you know, do it with a smile, like, then you'll get to, you know, you'll get on a first name basis with the showrunners and, and, and everybody on down from there. And, and really that's how you, you find your next job is, is when a show ends, Everyone spreads out to a new show, and someone will give you a call because they know you were, you know, dependable and cool. I do have one question about reality, which is I've heard, and you can tell me if this is true or not, that mm -hmm. 
you have to be careful because you can often get sort of trapped in reality programming if you go down that path too long. Is that true? I, I have a, yes, that's, that is absolutely true, and I, I lived it. Um, uh, when I worked on, on the mole, I actually became very fast friends with one of the other assistants um, who I found out had also been to USC, but we hadn't known each other when they were there. Um, and this guy, Austin um, Flack, who's now, he's like the head editor and one of the producers of Catfish on MTV. Um, but he and I worked together on the show. We had the same job. And at the end of The Mole, they, they basically said, like, you guys can be editors on the next show if you want. So it's kind of a war of attrition a lot of times in reality TV. Like, if you survive a season, like, there's often room to move up. And so it's a high-pressure high environment and kind of chaotic. But if you're the sort of person that can handle that, you can move up real quick. And so um, Austin took the job uh, and immediately got immediately was making way more money than I was, um, and I decided to stay an assistant and go into the scripted world instead. And to this day, we get together and laugh about it, and, and um, he works on, he works in Unscripted exclusively now, and, and he often thinks like, oh man, I don't know, if, you know, maybe it would have been better to go the opposite direction, and, and I think it, it just depends on where you're at and what you want to do and what your goals are, but the the kind of, the wall between them is definitely real, and you gotta be real careful um, if you go down a path that, that if, it's, if it's not the path you want to be on, um, that you get pigeonholed, unfortunately. Do you think that's true in terms of like hour long versus half hour, or is fiction just more malleable in terms of where you can go uh, scripted? It's, it's hard to know, but um, I, I think it's less so. Uh, I think there's less a distinction between hour and half hour, although I've, I've only worked on hour long dramas in scripted TV. Um, it's actually one of the things, I, jobs I, I hope to have someday and I've never had is working on a half hour like comedy show. I think it would be a lot of fun. Um, but it's just much more, those shows are, the, the pools of producers are, are shared amongst Inscripted. And so that's really the gatekeepers is when you're trying to convince someone to take you on for a job and they're looking at your resume, it's usually a, a post producer or an AP. And, you know, unfortunately, even though it's a creative industry, there's certain jobs where some of the people in those jobs are not always creative, and they would just rather go with someone they see on the resume, similar stuff. Um, and it can be a real challenge to convince people, you know. And it, it can happen, um, but you definitely need, like, personal connections, or, you know, you really got to work hard at it, so. So you moved to Ghost Whisperer after yep. that. And so what were you doing on that show, and how long were you on before you moved on to the next project? Uh, I was an assistant editor uh, on Ghost Whisperer for both the last two seasons, season four and five. Um, and awesome job. It was a lot of fun. Uh, at the time, this was one of the last shows for which this was the case, but at the time there were three editors on the show, and each editor had an assistant. Um, and that's much less common now. Um, Maybe in like prestige TV, HBO, pay cable sort of stuff, but in most traditional broadcast television, most shows these days are three editors, two assistants. Um, so at the time, I worked for a guy named Neil Mandelberg, um, and who was very nice to take me on. I was mostly unproven, but it, it worked out pretty well. Um, and I did assistant editor work, which is you know bringing in dailies, organizing them for the editor. Um, initially during the shoot and setting up dailies bins um, and then supporting the editor during the cuts, you know, and whatever they need. And Ghost Whisperer, it was a lot of visual effects work. That was a show that had a lot of gags, you know, the ghost teleports across the room or whatever. Um, and that turned out to be a really valuable experience for me. It was a way to kind of cut my teeth in doing temp effects in Avid, which um, 
is a very important skill these days, even for shows that you don't think of as visual effects shows. There's, there's an, almost no show these days that doesn't have a cell phone screen, you know, or a TV in the background, um, or the sky, you know, they want the sky to be cloudy and a lot of that stuff, you, you know, you're sort of expected to do these days in temp during the edit, so. Um, but then, so the two big parts of the job are, are supporting the editor, but then almost more important on a show is interfacing with the finishing people, the sound mixers, and the online houses, uh, and color correction people, and, and um, the thing I like about assistant editing is that it's, it synthesizes a ton of different skills, and every day is a little different in the mix of what you do, and, and I found that to be a good match for me. So I've done a, a fair amount of assistant work over the years. And so how long would you have for any individual episode, and like what were, the, were they long work days? How did that work? Um, typically not super bad. Um, Unlike reality, kind of in, an, in a non-union environment, when they, and this is kind of why the union exists, is, you know, the union has very strict rules about what they pay you per hour and how many hours they pay you for, and if you go over that, you start to make a lot more money very quickly. And um, so they they tend not to work you overtime on scripted shows generally if the shows are well run. Sometimes there are shows that have problems and you need to work a lot more. Um, versus reality where it's a lot of long hours, um, typically, because they don't, you know, sometimes they don't need to pay anything extra, they're paying you on a flat rate. Um, but um, a show would typically go, a TV season is shot, they just keep shooting it, basically, once they start. So um, a show will typically have between, usually seven days of production to shoot an, uh, an hour-long episode. Um, some shows a little more, I doubt less than seven, but maybe. Um, and then the whole thing kind of pipelines. So you start shooting episode one, and then you know while you're in the during the director's cut and the producer's cuts on episode one, they're shooting episode two, and then you're kind of doing the final sound mixes and visual effects work while episode three is being shot. And then by the time you're ready, episode four is being shot, and that's your show again. So you cycle back around, um, and the whole cycle takes about five weeks from when like the first day of production on a show to when it's ready to air. Um, and typically shows will start with kind of a pad before their first air date, and then it kind of gets eaten up over the course of the season. So, and this I'm still, I'm talking about kind of a traditional 22-episode network season, but yeah, the, the first few episodes, you'll be finishing them, and they won't air for a few weeks after when you're done. And then by the end of the season, like, you're finishing, and the show's on the air, you know, three days later or something. So, um, <laughs> And then you basically get, like, the summer. Yeah, yeah, and then it's, you know, it was interesting because... Uh, my wife is a, a professor. Uh, some of you may know her. her name is Suzanne Scott. She teaches here. Um, and it ended up working out really great because she's a teacher and she kind of had that part of the year off. And when I was working in network TV, it was a very similar. We started work in kind of late July, August, and I would go till April or May sometime. And then, and then you know, you have time off. And if your show's renewed, it's great because you can goof off all summer and know that you have a job to come back to. Um, and if you're canceled, then you go find a new job. So what was the job you found when Ghost Whisperer ended? Uh, when Ghost Whisperer ended, I followed the editor I was working for, Neil. Um, he went on to a CW show that only ran for a season called Hellcats. Um, and so we went and worked on Hellcats for a season. Um, and then Hellcats got canceled. And then that was the first summer where the guy I was working for didn't have a job by kind of the end of the summer, and I kind of had to go find other work. Um, and I, I ended up working for just a few months. Um, 
actually for my same friend who got me that initial job on the Ghost Whisperer episodes, by that time he was working for a big visual effects house, and so I worked as a visual effects editor uh, on the post house side, basically interfacing with TV shows and kind of receiving materials from them, making sure that they were what the visual effects guys needed and then handing them off, um, which I just did for a few months, and then I ended up getting called to move on to a show called Heart of Dixie, um, which ran on the CW for four seasons, and I worked on all four seasons of that. Um, and that came about by my resume was in a pile of resumes that uh, a, a studio executive, post-executive, had a stack of resumes of people he knew were sane and would show up to work and do the job. And, you know, when they, when, when they have an opening they, and the show doesn't have someone they want to hire immediately, you know, they start calling through those. So I, I, I got lucky. So you said that when you went to Hellcats, you went with your editor. Like, how common is it for the editor to kind of bring along people with them versus just to sort of land open? I think it's fairly common um, to stick with someone, um, you know, assuming the relationship is good. Mm -hmm. um, most shows, as I mentioned now, it's, it's three editors and only two assistants. And so it's a little bit of a different relationship in that you're not like one person's assistant and so I kind of preferred it that way actually because it was just it was you got to meet more people and like you know when your show got canceled there's three editors who might want to hire you when they go on to another show as opposed to all your eggs in one basket um, and so I would say it's very very common that that someone you work with directly an editor um, you know gets you your next job or at least puts you up for your next job. So with Heart of Dixie, was it any different in terms of your responsibilities or how it was to work for the CW versus the CBS? Like, did you see any substantive distinctions? Uh, the biggest difference was, the biggest difference was that, that Ghost Whisperer was a 3-3, as in one assistant for three, each of three editors, and, and, and uh, Heart of Dixie was a 3-2. And so I did have to learn kind of how to juggle suddenly even more things, you know, because you'll have one show in dailies for one editor and a different editor is working on a producer's cut. Um, and, a, you know, and then the, the show you worked on before that is like in color correction and you might get a call asking about a shot or an effect or a, a sound effect or something. Um, but uh, if you can sort of set up a system where you stay organized, you know, it's, it's a job where you definitely need to be organized. Um, but you can kind of, I was very lucky on that show to have a guy I became very close friends with, um, and he and I were very simpatico, and we kind of established systems and herded the editors into them, and, and the show by the third and fourth season kind of ran itself, which was really nice, and, and um, that show was on the Warner Brothers lot, which was really fun because the show was shot all on the Warner Brothers lot, and um, which is pretty uncommon nowadays. Most shows are shot out of town, um, even if they're written and edited in Los Angeles. Um, and it was really fun to be able to wander over to set and, you know, see the actors and eat snacks off the craft service table. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, it, generally the job was, is similar, though. So did you have any other substantive projects before moving to Austin? Um, I worked on, uh, after Dixie ended, I worked for, Dixie was produced by a, a company named Fake Empire, which was started by Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage. And they made the OC, that was the first show that made them real famous. Um, but they produced a bunch of shows over the years. And so their next show was Astronaut Wives Club, which just ran for a season on ABC. Um, and I worked on Astronaut Wives Club. I followed one of the editors from Dixie over there. Um, and then I worked on a pilot um, that did not go to series called Broad Squad, um, 
And that was kind of my last job in LA. Uh, and it worked out fairly well. That, you know, that job was hellish, frankly. Um, I was relieved when it didn't go to serious. Um, and then it was like kind of a nice, like a nice clean break. Yeah. And so that's when I moved to Austin. So what was it like to break into the media scene in Austin coming from LA? And what sorts of opportunities did you find here? Uh, it was, I was very, very lucky, I think, um, getting here. I didn't, I found a job basically right away. Um, and I've had, I've been really fortunate. I've, I've, I've dabbled in a lot of different stuff since getting to Austin. And I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised about how much great stuff there is going on here and how much different stuff. Um, and in the, I've been here about two years and I've worked on commercials and I've worked on short documentaries. I've worked on feature documentaries. I've worked on narrative feature films, um, both as an editor and an assistant editor. Um, so my first job was working at a, at a commercial post house downtown. Um, and uh, uh, from there, it was just, you know, I didn't know too many people, but through just, just kind of meeting, you guys know Chris Roldan? Anybody had him as a teacher? He's a um, teacher here as well. I, I met him through people in the department, and he was really good to me and introduced me around, and he's a very connected guy. Um, and I think I had, I had big shows from LA on my resume, so I think that made it easy for me to at least get called back when I would apply for stuff. So, so what did you have? Did you have a reel prepared or any sort of samples that you would be showing people, or was it just your resume, or what? And, and for people that are wanting to do this, what would you recommend them doing to prepare for this kind of job? Uh, I think it's good to have a reel. I, I had a reel. Um, I worked actually really hard on it. I don't know that anyone ever even looked at it, but um, <laughs> I would say a, a reel. It depends on what you're trying to do and how quickly you want to get there. Um, but for me, who kind of worked my way up through the TV ranks, um, you know, having a spectacular reel is less important than having a resume and and good references. Um, and so. The, you know, those have been the things that help you get jobs. And then the great thing about TV is that you, you know, you hang out long enough on a show and it goes long enough that editors move on and then most good shows and good producers will promote from within. And so from there you can go, you know, you can get a lot of practice um, helping editors cut scenes. And, and another big part of the job on a lot of shows is cutting recaps, you know, like tell us what the la happened in the last three episodes. You have 30 seconds, go. Uh, and when I first started doing that, man, it was really difficult. And, and um, it really got my chops in order real quick, you know. And, and by the time I had done it for a season or two on Ghost Whisperer, you know, I could do it easily. And, and it's skills that translate to documentary or trailer editing, um, commercial editing. Um, and so I think it's less important you have a, have a knockout reel starting out than it is um, that you build relationships and... and um, your resume. Cool. So I'm curious, what is it like to move into documentary? Is it, I mean, do you see the process as any different? Reality probably gave you some experience there. Yeah. Um, documentary, it, it's, it, it seems weird to talk about it monolithically because, mm -hmm. and reality TV is the same way. Um, it, it, it really can depend on the type of storytelling that's being done in the form. And there are documentaries and, and reality shows that have a very strong writing and story producer hand in it, where you know, you've got story producers 
reading interview transcripts and choosing the bites and deciding exactly what they want the spine of the story to be. And on a show like that or a documentary like that, the, the, the editor's job is more about making the, the footage work um, and finding things to cover up edits and, and interesting transitions and to make, to make scenes that weren't shot with you know, traditional coverage feel like they were shot with coverage. Um, and then there are you know, much more loosely defined uh, projects where it's like, oh, we set up a bunch of cameras and you know, put all these people on an island and have fun editing. And, and, uh, and you'll, you'll work with producers who are much more hands-off and open to you kind of making, finding the story yourself. And, and um, uh, they can both be fun. They're both challenging in different ways. Um, and you know, the only thing you can kind of do is you, know, you, you have your kind of fundamental skills um, in order, and, and you just kind of treat each job like a new challenge. And that it's, it's, always, it's always reinventing the wheel, every new show. Um, and that's part of the fun and part of the headache. Uh, you'd think everyone would have kind of figured it out by now. And it's, it's just the mix of people and the nature of the different stories being told, the different types of shows. It's, it's, always, it's always a challenge, but it's always it's fun because you always have to, th you know, you're always solving problems. So. So let's let's talk about Last Flag Flying. Sure. Uh, th which is the movie that you just recently, relatively recently, finished working on. Yeah. Yes. So maybe you can talk us through the process of working on that film. What is different about, if anything, uh, working on features yeah. versus television? Just sort of what the process is like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up getting a job um, working for Sandra Adair, who is an editor who lives in town. She works for Richard Linklater uh, primarily, although she's a, a director in her own right um, and has worked on a lot of other movies. But um, she hired me. Um, I just met her for coffee once, kind of through Chris Roldan, um, uh, which was really nice of him. Um, and got a job working on Last Flag, yeah, which, is, which just came out. Um, and it was a really fun experience for me because a lot of it felt very familiar, getting back to kind of a scripted environment. But um, there are definitely a lot of differences between TV and feature film production. And I think the difference is especially great kind of being here in Austin, you know what I mean? I think a, a, a typical large, larger feature produced in LA would probably be closer to TV. Um, but Rick's kind of on his own island here in town, and and um, and he and Sandra, you know, have worked together forever and have a very great working relationship. And um, so uh, it was great. It was fun to be able to focus on one thing for a real long amount of time. You know, six or eight months. Um, in, in TV, it's kind of about you do all the work, you work as hard as you can on it, and then like, oh, it's got to go on the air. And so. Everyone stops working on it, and then you go and work on the next thing, and it's um, that's an that's one kind of flow, and then there's kind of like this is it, and this is the thing that you know it's got to be exactly right, and um, you know we'll take as much time and money as we need to make it that way, and and um, that was interesting for me. In some ways, it was kind of like. I don't want to say I got bored of the film after a while, but it was interesting coming to work like seven months in and being like, wow, yep, it's just, it's the same movie. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and you really, you have to, you have to, every day you have to come in and bring like, you know, you have to bring chops to it. You have to have meaningful opinions about stuff, about small details that you think like, um, 
particularly for me, I think partially why I was hired was my visual effects background. And, and um, Last Flag's not a visual effects movie, but it was, it was shot um, in Pittsburgh, and there was a lot of blue screen work and location changing work that ended up um, needing a lot of attention. And, and sometimes it was hard you know, to, to say like, oh, I don't know, does, the, does the, the thing that goes by in the background of the train that no one will ever see, like, should it be blue and should the sign be here? Or like, maybe we should make it a little redder and move the sign up. Um, uh, but it was, by the end, it was awesome because a, just a, the, a feature film coming out, you know, it's, it's, it's a much bigger event, you know what I mean? And you get to read reviews of the movie and and um, you get to tell people to go to the theater to see it, and your mom goes and sees your name in the credits, and and uh, <laughs> and that part that part has been great, and and um, it's great. Uh, Rick and Sandra are so I mean they're so chill, um, and they've been doing this so long, and they're so great at their jobs, and and um, that part of it's been great. It's been really low stress. You know, they both have like kids and grandkids, you know, and they like going home to their families, and so we don't work late. You know, and we don't work weekends, and and um, you know that's there's times in TV where there's too many moving parts, and it's like too bad you're working, and and um, uh, overall it's been really nice though. So how big, is it? Just you and Sandra on the editing team, or are there others as well? It's pr it pretty much just us. Um, during Last Flag, we had a PA that um, during production who drove, who kind of was there to drive hard drives full of dailies back and forth across town, but then once. Uh, we were done with production. She she was off, and and um, the movie we're on now it's a little bit bigger, it's, uh, budget's a little higher, so we have like a full time PA. But um, yeah, it's really you know the technology is such these days that um, you can really do it with relatively few people, and and um, yeah, it, it makes it fun. It makes my job. There's a lot I got to keep track of, but it's also it's it's cool. So. What about when you have a cut? Were you, was there a test screening process to this, or what is that sort of? Yeah, and that was another thing that was completely new to me. Um, you know, in TV, kind of all that stuff is kind of front-loaded in that, you know, when you're jockeying to get that, that your pilot to go to series or you're jockeying to get that next season, you know, once they greenlight you for the season, most of the time, that's it, and everyone's just busy getting the show on the air. They're not worrying too much about audience reception. I'm sure there are people at the, at the network worrying about that, but the people on the show don't as much. Um, and this show, yeah, absolutely. We had um, test screenings of varying sizes and degrees. You know, first it was a few trusted people that, that we knew coming into the cutting room and watching it, and then it was slightly larger screenings at like Violet Crown um, that were kind of recruited by us and kind of run just by us. And then there were bigger screenings out in Pasadena, they did proper test screenings with a proper test screening company with the big forms they fill out. And it was really interesting to get to see all those forms afterwards. I'm, you know, they let us kind of see all the raw data. Um, and it's been interesting to see how the, the distributor and the studios make decisions of, on the marketing and stuff. It almost impacts, I think, marketing more than it does the movie. Yeah. Sometimes. So yeah, how much were you changing things after these various screenings and based on the feedback? Uh, uh, quite a bit, uh, and, and Rick is super collaborative, and, and it's one of the many great things about him, and he's very open to new ideas, and, um, you know, his ethos seems to be, you know, he, 
he likes everything that's in the script, you know, or he wouldn't have put it in the script to shoot it. And so he really likes to listen to people's reactions to the movie before he makes decisions about what needs to um, ultimately be in there. And so the test, the test cuts we screened were quite long, you know, 20 or 30 minutes over what, you know, we all knew the, the final movie would probably be. Um, and he absolutely took people's opinions into, you know, when he chose what to cut down, he, he would cite, you know, individuals or, or vibes that had come out of discussions he had had with test audiences. So, so uh, Amazon was involved, right? But, yes. And who was the distributor? Was it Amazon or? Uh, they ended up partnering. They have a distribution partner for theatrical and maybe. He sounds, he sounds sure. Lionsgate, that sounds right. Oh, there you go. If I if DB, it's got to be true. Uh, yes, that sounds right. Um, I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think I think Amazon is now their own distributor. Yeah. I think Last Flag may well be the last movie that they partner with anyone else to distribute. Um, but yeah, Amazon Studios was the studio, and they're based in LA, obviously. And um, there were a few times that they sent people out to look at cuts and, and weigh in, um, but uh, mostly they just let us work. Um, and we collaborated a lot. I had a lot of contact with them, you know, digitally, but um, you know, they were they were great to work with. Uh, very respectful of of the filmmakers. And um, well, and of course, you know, Linklater has a reputation at this yeah, point. Yeah, I'm sure helps. <laughs> yeah, no, and exactly. And and I um, I I think you can definitely take my my TV experience as representative of the industry as a whole. And I I'm I'm not quite so sure about. You know, working for Rick, um, I think he definitely he's definitely got his own good thing going here. Um, but uh, you know, that said, I, Amazon and now Annapurna is the studio on this new movie we're working on now. Um, in general, I think those people um, they seem to definitely have a lot more creative respect for a feature film director. I just think just because a, a film is one thing, and so it might as well be the thing that, that the director they hired wants it to be, whereas a, a TV series is more an, an evolving beast and can be changed mid, midway. And so studios and networks are definitely more involved, I think, in, in critiquing cuts and critiquing scripts and steering the way they think the show should go based on the market research they're getting. That makes sense. I'm curious. Uh especially given Suzanne studies, fans and audiences is probably more on your mind. Like how much are fans or audiences factored in in any way when you're working on these projects? Uh, not super actively on the stuff I've worked on. I know that there are TV showrunners who I think are very engaged with their audiences directly on social media or they think a lot about, um, you know, cross promotion or transmedia properties, those sort of stuff. Um, but I, th I think that there are a lot of, uh, a lot of TV creatives and, and, and film directors who are more focused on the, the work. And I think that they probably rightly believe in many cases that by being true to themselves, like, you know, the people who are fans of their work will probably continue to be rather than trying to chase, you know, chase what their perception is of what their fans like about them. Mm -hmm. So... So I'm going to shift gears a little bit now and just ask um, back to the MFA discussion for a question for yeah. our students here who are thinking about like 
should I get an MFA? Is that something that I could sh should consider doing? Uh, not including the students in the class who have an MFA already, <laughs> or, or working towards one. Uh, you know, what are the pluses and minuses of getting an MFA in production in particular? Yeah. Um, people ask me this question quite a bit, and I always, I always ask a follow-up question, and the question is, like, do you have the guts to just move to LA and start trying to work? And if the answer is yes, then I say you probably don't need to go get an MFA. Um, and I would especially say that now to UT students, just based on the ones I've interacted with. Like, if you've majored, if you've majored in RTF undergrad, the, I would say there's, there's definitely no reason to go. Um, I think that for me, it was definitely the right decision at the time. You know, I, I would definitely not have had the guts to move to the big city and try my hand not knowing anybody. Um, and for me, USC was, you know, a time that I was able to sort of sort myself out, explore myself creatively, and get used to LA as a city and as a commute and as a lifestyle. Um, but, you know, it was very expensive. And so, you know, looking at it from a cost-benefit standpoint, I think, um, there's very few, if any, I would venture to say there are no jobs in Hollywood that someone would turn you away from because you didn't have a master's degree. Um, and, and Hollywood is very much about just getting your foot in the door and then leapfrogging from opportunity to opportunity, just trying to impress people and make friends along the way. So um, I would say ask yourself that question. And if if you and then just go for it. If the answer is yes, don't worry about grad school. So related to that, are there certain things that you wish you'd learned when you were getting your MFA or when you were you know learning in school about the industry that you or just media generally that you weren't exposed to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I and and I don't mean to slag on USC when I say this, because actually I think USC is one of the better film schools for teaching um, the crafts, um, like I said, but um, that we got very little instruction about kind of really what the day-to-day -day job would entail for the job we might have when we got out of school. And I think some of that practical knowledge could have gone a long way, um, you know, as opposed to basically trying to learn on the job, you know, which I was, able to do, but, but I think it was made things tough at first. And, and um, the problem with, I think USC in particular, a lot of the faculty were older. And I just, I came up at a time kind of amidst the transition from, from film and tape, tape-based workflows and TV to digital. And so, you know, at the time there weren't, fa you know, none of the editors that were my professors had like, they, some of them had used AVIDs, but many of them had like not even used AVIDs and had certainly never assisted in a digital NLE platform. And so um, it was hard to get really like boots on the ground, day-to-day -day knowledge about what the job would entail. Um, and I wish I'd had a little more of that. Um, but my inkling is that you guys, like here, the students here are getting more of that stuff, so, and that makes me feel good. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, you guys may Bringing people like you in to talk about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, okay, my other question was, um, because you've been in LA and in Austin, you know, what are your thoughts about, for students here, should I move, should I stay or should I go? Uh, yeah, unequivocally, yes, go move to LA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really, like, I think, 
everyone's different and you got to ask yourself the question, but like, if you want to work in entertainment, um, you should move to LA and give it a shot. Um, and that's where for better or worse, most of the opportunities are, um, and all the work is, and LA can be an intimidating place, but once you get up to speed with it, it's a lovely place to live. Um, the traffic is bad. I will grant you that. Um, you got to be a little careful about wh where you choose to live to minimize your commute. But um, yeah, I just think the breadth of experience you can get and the, the connections you can make um, will serve you well no matter what you ultimately do. Um, the only reason I've had as much quick success here in Austin is that I had experience in LA. And you know, not, and that goes for personal connections as well as skills. Um, and uh, my hope is that with time, more and more um, post-production kind of disperses from LA to different places. Um, there's no technological reason that it couldn't happen, but you know, the, the, the truth is that almost everything still goes on in LA, uh, and so you should give it a shot. Cool. Um, well, I think actually I'm going to open it up for questions from the audience. Uh, I already see a hand rising. Mm. And since we're one microphone short, I'm going to pass this off like a torch. Uh, what editing program do you primary, primarily use, or does it vary with each job? Uh, Almost all of my professional work has been done in Avid, uh, Media Composer. Uh, it's definitely still the standard in the scripted world, both in features and TV. Um, it's, it's a little bit harder to learn, but it's definitely like there's a reason it's used for long form. Um, but it's definitely good to learn other programs. You know, I know Premiere is in wide use. Uh, and the truth is, 75% of all this, you know, they, they do all the same things. Um, it's pretty easy to learn them both. And, and um, uh, but it is scripted as primarily avid, non-scripted, short form commercial work. It's, it's more of a mixed bag. Um, I, I, I think a lot of it's premiere, um, but there's still quite a few places I've worked at in, in commercials and stuff that, that use avid. Um, but yeah, if you want to be an editor, um, yeah, it's definitely worth your time to kind of at least be basically conversant in both of them. Um, I, so I had a question about, uh, you spoke about how it was sort of a pleasant surprise for you coming to Austin and seeing the breadth and, and variety of work going on here. Yeah. So with that in mind, I had sort of two questions. The first was with your advice to go out to L.A., <clears throat> would does your answer, answer to that question change at all if we, for us, if we have tried during school to establish roots here in that system that's going on in Austin, do you think we should continue to pursue those leads or still go to LA? And then also just what you've, of the variety of work, yeah, you know, what, what you feel for you personally, the, uh, you know, what has the best prospects, you know, documentary or this or that, so. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the, th the uh, like I said, yeah, you're right. The, the breadth of stuff here is great, but the, the problem is, like, the total number of, I think, really great jobs, I think. Well, it depends on your definition of a great job. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like, if you want to work in 
features that have distribution in Austin, like, too bad, I already have the job. Like, you can't have my job. So, um, uh, you know, but, uh, but I, on the other hand, absolutely, if, you, if you've worked hard in town and you know people that want to hire you at a cool place in Austin, by all means, take the job. Absolutely. Um, you know, the only rule that's above go to L.A. now is, is, like, know a good opportunity when you see one and take it. And so, and Austin's such a w lovely city. Um, I really, I expected to miss L.A. much more than I do. This is a real easy place to live. It's, um, and it's a fun place to work. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I, I guess I'm speaking more to if, if you're If your goal is to work in high-end scripted TV, um, you know, broadcast TV, traditional TV, or, or features, there's just so many more opportunities, so many more rolls of the dice um, in Los Angeles. Um, and in terms of the second part of your question, it's hard to say. I, I, my guess is that the, the, the most best opportunities in Austin are probably in the advertising world um, or possibly more in the kind of like next generation online content, the kind of rooster teeth, high-end YouTube content kind of world. Um, there seems to be a lot of that stuff going on. And um, I don't have any personal experience in it yet, but I would, I would be happy to get some at some point. Uh, I work right next door to Rooster Teeth's office, and they seem like they're having a good time over there. So. <laughs> yeah, um, you originally uh, talked about how you had uh, knowledge in computer science. And is that handy at all? Or you're like, oh, I learned it. Oh, okay, but I never used it. Or I don't know. Uh, How, like, is it, was it helpful in post-production stuff? Yeah, the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's a ton of, it's gotten, the technical side of assistant editing has gotten a lot better than it was. Um, like, when I first started out, you kind of needed a, computer science degree to like keep Avid running. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, maybe that's part of the reason I, you know, I was successful quickly, but um, it's better now, but there's a, there's a ton of like troubleshooting and like uh, you, can, you can make your show run a lot more smoothly if you're intimately familiar with, you know, software. Um, and, 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 you don't even necessarily need to be good at it. You just need to kind of like it enough to, to be able to dive in and figure out, like, why. Like, Avid is such a weird program on so many levels. But the older I get, the more I think, like, eh, actually, like, they did a pretty good job. Like, <laughs> like it's, so, it's so fussy and so weird. It was, Avid was designed, if anyone doesn't know, it was, it was basically designed for film editors by a company that didn't really... They weren't, pro, they weren't people that designed computer software. Like, they were people that were, like, building something for this very specific use. And so if you're used to stuff built by Apple and stuff that's, like, consumer-built software built on those principles, in some ways doesn't make any freaking sense. But then once you realize kind of, like, why it is the way it is, it, it does make a lot of sense. But it helps if you like computers enough to be fascinated by it to go figure that out about it. Um, now, I don't want that to scare anyone off. Like, if you don't like computers, you can absolutely still, the, the job's much more about being 
communicative and organized than it is about being great with computers. But you know, you may end up spending a lot more time on on you know avid tech service calls, <laughs> trying to debug your machine versus being able to fix it yourself. So, um, but it definitely helps. Hi, um, so I've lived in Austin my whole life and so I'm kind of like not scared but just unwilling sort of to move mm -hmm. out and like <laughs> I've just, I don't know, like all my family is around here in Texas. Um, I guess since you've moved here, like what are the opportunities that you were seeing and uh, besides advertising and stuff and like I guess especially with uh, virtual reality kind of moving into Austin scene and that kind of growing in terms of more cinematic Material, yeah. I guess, do you see there being more opportunities to, like, kind of hang out at least around the area or, like, in Texas or something? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's interesting because, so you grew up here, you said? Yeah. Yeah, see, I often think about, like, I grew up in the middle of freaking nowhere in Wisconsin, like, way out in the woods. And I've often asked myself the question, like, Man, if I just grew up somewhere cool and didn't have to go move somewhere cool, like would I have just stayed? And like, I I might have. Um, so in some ways, like I'm I'm glad I'm from somewhere lame because it forced me to kind of get out there. Um, but I think if you want to stay in Austin, like I I, I think there's definitely going to be there's great stuff to do now, and and like you said, increasingly so. I think that the city is really tied into like an emerging tech scene and in video games and as you say virtual reality and I think like Austin if it's not already a hotbed of those places definitely has the potential to be one of the centers of it and all that stuff is going to need you know production people it's going to need writers and editors and, and cinematographers and so um, like yeah if, if you want to stay you, by all means stay you're going to find interesting fun stuff to do um, uh, it's just it's just a matter of, of what you like best or what you think you like working on best and and keep in mind sometimes the thing you like to watch best or consume best like that may not be the best job for you either um, and so you know one of the things I really like about uh, liked especially liked about TV is that like I was never a huge TV fan myself and so it kind of afforded this nice distance for me where I didn't get too emotionally involved in it. Um, because you don't always have control over the show you're going to work on. And so, you know, like, I, would I have ever watched a CW show about, cheer, you know, college cheerleaders? Probably not. But um, uh, I didn't need to to work on the show. And, and, and um, so I, I just, just try stuff and follow your heart. That's dumb advice, but it's also, it's also correct advice. So. Uh, <laughs> So you talked about scripted and doc work, but I was wondering if there was, um, oh, you personally haven't worked in it, but um, editing for streaming platforms, I was wondering if you could give insight to more of that workflow, if you have friends that maybe do that and see how that differs, because it is scripted, but obviously the timetables are different. Yeah, sure. So you're, you're talking about like Netflix and Hulu shows? Yeah. Yeah, um, that's been a really interesting transition. Um, and the short answer is most of those are all produced and is similar to a traditional scripted television. Um, sort of world. I think it's mostly the same 
the same sets of, of producers and below the line creative people and, and oftentimes actors and, and producers and directors as well. Um, what has changed about it is that um, what used to be kind of traditionally the TV season in terms of when you would have to find a job by, otherwise you're like out, of, you can't find a job because there's no work. That's really gone away because there's shows being made year round now. Um, and so, uh, you know, like in my day, you know, the most jobs I had, I would work for nine months and goof off for three months. Um, you know, nowadays a lot of people I think make their living working on a lot of those. A lot of those seasons are 12 and 13 episodes, and that ends up being about six months of work. So I know people who work on like one show for six months, another show for the other six months of the year. So if you want to work a lot, it's good. And or if you miss out on a job, it's better because there's always another job coming down. Um, but in, in the way the shows are produced, they're very, it's very similar. It's just kind of the money's coming straight from Netflix or straight from Hulu as opposed to kind of via a network through advertisers. Um, you discussed when you were getting your start, rather than taking internships or something, you worked on a lot of student work, and that's how you kind of met people and made connections. Do you suggest taking that path, or do you wish you'd taken on more, like, at least semi-professional internships and done that before you graduated? Yeah, I, I, I probably, if I were smart, I probably should have done a little more of that, um, I think. It ended up working out okay for me. Um, in the end, but I think if you can, I think if you can juggle both, it's good. But I, I mean, in terms of, it's you're kind of more buying a lottery ticket on some level when you work with your friends, you know, because if you edit your buddy's student movie and it goes to Sundance and that person go gets to make a feature, like you're their guy then or girl. Um, so, uh, but you got to, you know, you got to find a job. Most people are going to find need to find a job, and so. Um, Absolutely, I think it's good to do to do internships, and as much as you can kind of like you know afford to work for free, it is a very good way to kind of get into graces. And and the only thing you need to be worried about is like you kind of need to look at the people that are you know employing you and and be realistic about whether you think they're going to be able to actually hire you at some point, you know, and don't work forever on a free job that's never going to go anywhere. Because I would say it's not. It's not most people, but there are definitely out people who would take advantage of free labor. I think most people are probably pretty genuine, and I think if you show up and are good and an unpaid job, I think if those people had a job for you, they would want to hire you. Um, but you know, you just got to protect yourself a little bit. So. You just want to make him climb over. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you mentioned working with visual effects and kind of having a background in that. Like, how did you get that in school? And if not, or if so, like, how important did that become in terms of the jobs that you ended up taking? Uh, I didn't have any formal visual effects training in school, either undergrad or grad school. Um, I kind of dinked around on my own, um, doing, like, kind of fan videos sort of stuff, and then... Really, it was a friend of mine, the, my friend Stefan, who got me the job on Ghost Whisperer. Like, he's become like a like a legit VFX guy, and so kind of working alongside and next to him and being his friend, I've absorbed a lot of stuff through osmosis. Um, and then a lot of it was just kind of teaching myself on the job. Um, 
And that really is one of the most fun parts of being an assistant editor is temp visual effects are really fun because like you're kind of free to experiment and if it looks good, everyone's super impressed. But if it looks bad, you're just like, it's temp, what did you want? Uh, and everyone's like, oh yeah, you're right, it's temp. Um, and so the, the, like, uh, I like doing that work, but I could never be an actual artist. Like doing the final 10% of the detail work to make it all look perfect, I would go insane. Um, but I love like kind of like kind of getting it in there and making it look kind of okay, you know what I mean? Um, so, uh, yeah, I would say, you know, th these days it's a lot easier to kind of get a hold of a copy of After Effects than it was when I was your age. And so, um, you know, uh, if you can work on friends or make your own videos and, you know, if you can kind of teach yourself to do a decent green screen comp or like tracking, you know, those are really, those are skills that you will absolutely use and probably almost any, no matter how boring the show, you know, again, someone's gonna have their phone and they're not gonna know what they wanna put on it so they just shoot it with blue and then it's your job to track something on there in the shot. And those are really valuable, valuable skill, bankable skills to have as an assistant editor, so, and an editor. Speaking of skills, so I have a couple more questions yep. that I'm gonna ask. Sure. Um, so are there other skills, whether it's software, classes, knowledge, that people should gain while they're still in school? that you would recommend? Uh, specifically for editorial and kind of traditional film and television sense, the really the most important thing is to learn NLE software, Avid Media Composer and Premiere. Um, and I guess, I don't know, Final Cut, I don't know if anyone actually makes shows with Final Cut, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> those two. Um, and then it's more about if you can definitely make yourself versatile by learning thing, like other things in the Adobe suite, like if you can do a little bit of effects work, you know, or you know, still Photoshop, like that stuff will make you, it could make you invaluable on a job, do you know what I mean? Or it might tip you over the, over the hump if it's between you and somebody else and you can do a little Photoshop work and they can't. Um, and, but on the other hand, you gotta be a little careful, like, if you're too good at that stuff, like people will just make you do it and then and they don't pay you any extra money. And and so, um, uh, my, yeah, my converse advice is like, let them know you can do it, but like don't let them know how good you are. Like <laughs> until you can be sure they won't like, you know, exploit you. Um, uh, but you know, beyond that, you know, it's just, it's it sounds really like really dumb basic stuff, but like, you know, communicating clearly, you know, being normal, Show, like showing up to work on time and sober. Like it's really, honestly, like the thing that I learned my first few years out of school, I was so scared to finally leave school and uh, like enter the working world. And I finally got out there and I kind of looked around a few years in and I was like, oh man, like, like literally, if you like show up sober every day on time and like return emails and try your best, like you're literally, you're ahead of six out of 10 people. <laughs> Seriously, especially in LA. And this is a, like, there's so many like, there, there's like, there's a lot of nepotism in Hollywood, right? So like, you're gonna be up against people who's just like their uncle's a producer, so they got him a job, and like, definitely you can outwork these people. Like, uh, these don't, people don't have a, they're easy to look good next to them, and so like take that opportunity, like do the easy stuff, uh, and don't be intimidated. Like, don't think, don't think, oh, I'm not good enough yet. Absolutely, I'm a fan of like, fake it till you make it. Like, just scam your way into the job. Like, if you're like, eh, I don't know. Like, if they're like, wow, we really need someone, you know, 
we really need someone who can comp green screen windows. We got 500 shots. Just tell them you can do it. Figure it out when you're on the job. <laughs> like, like the worst thing that happens is they fire you. And I'm telling you, they're not going to fire you. Because then they just have to go hire somebody else. They're not going to fire you unless you're a dick or you don't show up to work. Um, but, yeah. Not no, even then. Exactly. And maybe not even then. Seriously. <laughs> like, you see people... Yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely there are people who are good at their jobs, and so they take that as a license to be a bad people because they're like, eh, what are you going to do to me? I'm too good at my job. Uh, and there are people who are terrible at their jobs, but they're nice. Neither of those people ever get fired. You have to be, uh, you have to be a bad person, a bad grumpy person, and bad at your job to get fired. So if, I'm telling you, if you can be one of those two things, you can make it in Hollywood, I promise you. I, I, it sounds like I'm joking, but I swear to God I'm not. <laughs> I think you're the first guest we've had who's gotten applause for something they've said. Oh, wow. Well. So that's, that's something. It's just the truth. And, and my final question, and no one, no one caught me this time. I've, I've asked in the first half of the semester, what are you watching? And then I've forgotten, and someone's always asked. Oh, really? But what are you watching? <sighs> Good question. Wait, film or TV? Whatever. All of the above. Um, well, I haven't seen the finale yet. But I very much like this season of American Horror Story. Um, I freaking I love that show. It's just so crazy. Every week I watch it, and I think, like, how in hell do they get this on TV? Like, <laughs> the, no, the, the standards... So, you guys know what standards and practices is? Yes. Yeah, so, like, the, the S&P notes we used to get on Heart of Dixie, like... Rachel Bilson's shorts are too short. Can you, like, CGI them down two inches? Like, like which is a thing we did one time on Heart of Dixie. Like, uh, and then you watch American Horror Story, and it's like, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's like rated X movie stuff. Like, I, I don't know. I, and that, I watch it surely to think, like, what the hell? What are they going to get on cable this week? Um, I love that show. But I watch a lot of, like, like dumb comedies. Like, I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, and like Bob's Burgers and Broad City. Uh, this season of Broad City is awesome. Um, best since season one. Um, I just saw three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. I liked it very much. Um, I didn't like it quite as much as I hoped I would. Um, but I freaking loved uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. was awesome. I highly recommend that. It's so freaking weird. Um, especially if you're a fan of The Lobster. You see The Lobster? That's that same director's last movie, which I loved. And um, that new movie, I think it's too weird to like win an Oscar, but if I were an Oscar voter, that's, that's what I would vote for. <laughs> and Thor's awesome, too. I saw Thor twice. It's, it's a lot of fun. Well, that's a good note to end on. And thank you so much. This was great. Sure. Thank you for listening to Media Industry Conversations. For more information about upcoming speakers or to hear past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu slash mic or follow us on Twitter at rtfmic. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with the assistance of Brett Siegel, Britta Hansen, and Annie Major. And the program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. We hope you join us again next time for another media industry conversation. There is a land, a western land, mighty wonderful to see. It is a land I understand, and it's there I long to be.